anyway, we, at, we had four schedules, uh, four sessions, possibly five scheduled. Uh, we want to make sure that we glorify God first. I, I went over what is young earth creation view, and as we discussed, there's probably disagreement on it. And there's, uh, what would we go over, like five different creation views that Christians tend to hold? And Christians a lot of times can kind of take it or leave it, right? I mean, it's not going to destroy their worldview. Atheists, got to have it. If evolution's not true, they're done for. Because there's only one alternative left. And to them, that's unacceptable. Some of them, some of them have even said so, if you listen to Gary uh, Stevenson's uh, uh, series that he did on that. Yeah, yeah, it is. He, he crammed that actually into three sessions. Normally it's four. It's really good. Okay, so we talked about what young earth creation is. It's basically, we, we, I am a young earth creationist, by the way, and, and we, if, we di if we disagree, we can agree to do that. But uh, typically we hold that the universe is under 10,000 years old. And I know that that comes with a lot of, uh, I don't know, it's mildly controversial, I'd say, among Christians. Among Christians and secular, and then it might get a little more not so mild, a little more severe. Anyway, we talked about other creation views. We talked about the relevance of it. And, and I pointed out some shocking facts and statistics. One of them that's really shocking was the kids that were going to Sunday school were more likely to disbelieve the Bible stories. That was just a statistical fact that they did out of surveying 1,000 20 to 30-year-olds and asked them a, a battery of questions, and that's what they found. Exactly why, I don't know, they had their theories. Their theories why. Maybe we're not offering an apologetic, so they're getting what they kind of start to view as fairy tales in church, and then they go out and they get the real thing in, in, the, you know, in the public schools and hear the science and all of that stuff, and there's no, there's no reconciliation of it from any of the creation views, probably. Um, Let's see, we started talking about the Yek, the Young Earth Creation Evidence, and I started with Scripture, and we went over a bunch of those. Let's see, we glorified God first. And I picked Psalm 148 last time with the wild animals and the cattle and small creatures and flying birds, and then I, I told you about um, continuous environmental tracking which was absolutely amazing. I mean, to a science geek like me it is, because that means God programmed into the animals not just the ability to lose genetic information and become more diverse after their kind. Remember I said probably just a pair of wolves on the ark. Not a wolf and a poodle, praise God, or chihuahuas, <laughs> or Boston Terriers and all of that stuff, right? So that all, all came from that same... Uh, ancestral genome, I guess you could say, of the dog kind or the canine kind. And uh, continuous, continuous environmental tracking was even more shocking than that, though, the diversity, because it said that within one generation, fish could lose eyes in the caves. Something in the environment triggers actual genes that are passed, well, activated in offspring. So they were not losing information, it's just getting activated or deactivated. So those fish could gain or lose eyes in one generation. The birds, the finches of Darwin could thicken or thin their beaks in subsequent generations in two years. So it wasn't a one-way direction like Darwin interpreted it. 
it was both ways. It was adaptive to whatever the environment said. So I found that absolutely amazing. That's uh, one of the reasons I picked that verse right there. There's those cave fish right there. Uh, I already mentioned that and that. Back and forth between beaks. Unlike, oh yeah, there's the, the wolf. I told you guys, it's it, basically a one-way ticket. You can take a pair of wolves, and if you would live long enough, you could crossbreed and selective breed until you got down to chihuahuas, but you're not going back to wolves from the chihuahuas. Lost too much information. Yeah. What's that? Attitude, attitude? Yeah, they still kept the attitude, didn't they? The little chihuahuas, they, they think they're a wolf still. My great-great-great-grandpappy could whip you. And so can I. <laughs> All right. Uh, we talked about some other creation views. One of them that I had skipped, uh, that author right there, uh, John Walton, with the lost world of Genesis 1. It didn't really have a name, this, this view. Um, so Phil Cornwell nicknamed it, I guess, the uh, temple inauguration view. And that one was basically saying that... Um, the focus was more on assignment of function rather than material creation. And we talked about the relevance, and I, I brought that up already gone. That's where we saw that shocking information, even the Sunday school stuff. And I was like, what? Um, there you go. Stats show that we may not be doing Sunday school combined with apologetics, right? Not pouncing on any churches or any peoples. All right, and then we uh, talked a little bit about the... Uh, young earth creation evidence evidence itself how do you interpret evidence well there's two different ways science is done remember one of them is operationally that's like the one with the salt you combine so many grams of sodium and so many grams of chlorine they're both deadly individually when they're pure but then when you bond them together they make table salt that happens every single time and it's very reliable and testable repeatable that's operational science and then we talked about that bird that smacked the window and then you just find the evidence and you have to kind of make a theory of what you figure happened. And I mean, you know, you could be 95% confident of what happened, but there's always that alternative possibility that might have happened. Okay. By the way, I'm sorry, Moses. Uh, my guest this evening is a friend I've known since 2015. You guys, you want to wave? Yeah, this, this is Moses. Yeah, it's great to have him here. Okay. Um, there's the bird, Mark. Somebody was asking, huh? Is he a science geek? No, he's probably bored to tears right now, but he's a good friend. So, so he's, <laughs> he's going to, yeah, he'll just endure it for me. Yeah. So you, you remember that smack of the bird on there? Somebody asked me, why no blood? And <laughs> I don't know what, if it's dust or what it is that comes out of the bird, but somebody else confirmed, yep, that's what they look like when the bird hits the window. And there's the dead body. There's the camera that filmed it, and I guess the man in the house thought it was kind of interesting and somewhat funny here's remember what i said about the brainchild theory that little that picture is kind of too small right there but that's that guy i didn't have time to show you the video and i'm i don't have time tonight either but if you guys want to take a look at it that's the one where the they uh, took the uh specimen of lucy you guys familiar with that the the hominid australopithecus and and uh the scientist in this video clip said that this hip structure must have gotten mashed or something because it, we, we know that this, this uh, hominid was starting to stand upright and he took a dremel to it and ground the hip until it, 
until it fit the theory that he wanted. And I mean, it didn't even occur to him, I guess. He, he literally was so convinced. He, that's what I mean by the brainchild theory. When evidence to the contrary, you just can't let it go. And that, I think, is happening in the science community. More possibly on that later. Scriptures we covered. There's the, the list of scriptures I went over. Mainly, uh, the things that we can, could draw from that, or that I drew from that, anyway, was that God's miracles are thorough and instant. Thorough and instant. I know, yes, you could bring up the one, well, what about the guy where you put the mud on there and it was like, oh, I see, it's kind of blurry. I see trees. I see people like trees walking. And then he gave him a second treatment. Boom. Could see clear of the bell. Okay, but that's like within the same, you know, few minutes, I'm assuming. That's not, not where he did the miracle and said, okay, and then, you know, it'll be fine in a couple months. No, it was always instantaneous. And that's the way I look at creation. Uh, we also saw that it was thorough. His miracles are thorough. They're conclusive. Now, you don't hear anybody saying that Jesus was pulling magic tricks or sleight of hand or illusions or anything like that. Even his enemies said that he was a sorcerer who led Israel astray. So they acknowledged he was doing miracles, but said it was from the devil. And that was the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit right there. And then, uh, oh yeah, and I also read to you the scripture from Exodus 20, which God himself wrote on stone that said in six days, he created everything. Oh, yeah, I did it again. Okay, I put a whole bunch of stuff on there. <laughs> yeah, I, I pretty, I'm not paying it. I have a pretty much blatant disregard for that. Colorado. <laughs> Who do they think they are? So. Huh? Yeah, I know. It's kind of pointless. <laughs> All right, creation glorifies God. What scripture did I pick today? Ezekiel 1. Ezekiel 1, starting at verse 4, it says, I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was, that, was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Now, does anybody know what that is, by the way, that I just flashed up there? Aurora Borealis, Northern Lights, that's correct. I'm assuming, excuse me, there's an Australia, Australis, Borea, uh, there's a southern one too, uh, anyway. Um, did I pick that because it exactly manifests that scripture right there? No, but what I thought that it did was captured the power and the beauty and the glory of it, like that scripture did. Uh, has anybody seen these live, in person? Yeah? Ooh, not too many. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I was shocked to hear that somebody in uh, like the northern states or something saw them one time. And then that's not... Yeah, yeah, you don't usually get to see that. Yes, ma'am. Michigan. Michigan. I got gypped. Should have went to the UP. There was either this morning or yesterday on the Today Show saying that they were from, they stretched from the west coast, the east coast to the west coast just this past weekend or something. Wow. Every time I hear stuff like that nowadays, I mean, I know every generation thinks that oh, the Lord's coming back during our lifetime. Well, I mean, I just, there will be signs in the heavens. And you keep hearing about stuff all the time, more frequently than normal. Top of the solar cycle? Every 11 years, you get more of an influx of uh, solar energy. Yeah. 
I heard earthquake frequencies increased too, though, over the last yeah, last couple decades. It's it's a lot. On the weather report, they showed the earthquake frequency yeah. in the sky when the moon was making, and then this this uh, it looked like an angel was coming. Up. It was weird. It was weird. But have you ever seen a rainbow at night? No. We have. We have. Whoa. After living in Colorado, you know, and between the mushrooms and. Oh, wow. This was from Hawaii, from Ireland. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And it was actually color also. And what creates it, I thought, this is weird. I looked it up. In England, they have them all the time. It's the moisture particles in the air, and it creates those rainbows. With the moonlight, yeah. it, just, it was it was amazing because we were on Maui, and from Lanai to Molokai, there was just this huge, almost white with a little color rainbow mm -hmm. from island to island. It was, and this was like late at night. That is amazing. Yeah, yeah. God's creation is awesome. Let's watch a video clip about these northern lights. Just a, it's like a minute 47, I think it is. Interesting. So those Canadians can watch them quite a, quite a bit of the year, can't they? You see that? All right. And then once again, we saw this one before. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. In multiple ways, obviously. Okay. Let's talk about the, uh, some a bit of... Young Earth creation evidence from astronomy. This one's called the Faint Sun Paradox. We'll get to that in just a sec. I hope, I hope also to cover this evening short-lived comets. And from a different article, this one is uh, Galaxies Winding Up Too Fast and a Rapidly Decaying Magnetic Field. Okay. Oh yeah, first I want to make sure we cover this. Yeah. You guys didn't know that about Young Earth Creation View? Yeah, well. <laughs> you really thought, did, did anybody really think Young Earth guys think that? <laughs> Earth is not flat. Oh, you know what? This is what bothers me. That, that people, in order to refer to ancient man, they, they think, they act like they thought the Earth was flat. And they never did. That is a historical myth, and it got implanted because three fictional authors, one of them was uh, Irving that wrote The Sleepy Hollow, and then there were two other authors too that used that concept in their fictional works, and somehow it got into historical legend or myth that societies used to think this. But you can go back to like, eight, I mean, you might be able to find sailors or something like, oh, you don't sail too close to the edge, you fall off. But... Um, for the most part, they didn't think the Earth was flat. He didn't think it was flat. He, was going to go he thought it was smaller than it was, which I don't know how he fell into that either because uh, Eratosthenes, the Greek, calculated way before Columbus within 97-something percent accuracy the circumference of the Earth. So they not only knew it was spherical, they knew really close to how big it was. 
So. The cats would have pushed everything off. I know. Yeah. Anyway, they didn't believe that. Oh yeah, remember her? She might have believed it. Flat as a pancake. <laughs> no, nobody stops me. You just let me keep right on going. This is what I tell my students sometimes. Your number one objective is not to learn, it's to keep me from doing stupid things. Number two is to learn something. And the earth is not at the center of the universe, even though, oh, uh, this actually does apply. There are people that really did think that. That, that. that was called geocentrism, and they thought the earth was at the center, everything was rotating around it. I think there's some people that still try to argue that, which is really weird, but... Uh, there's some people that do. Why do I bring that up? Because it shows that, although it wasn't really, I guess, a science community, it was more of a philosophy community at the time, natural philosophy, thought that. And it was a mistaken paradigm, and the weird thing is that it worked. Ptolemy used it to come out with a model, and he could predict where planets were going to be. Yeah. But the reason they did that is they were saying, the Bible says the earth cannot be moved. And it's on foundation. So therefore, the Bible teaches the earth can't move. So therefore, the sun must go around the earth. So they came up with this, like you said, incredibly complex way of trying to get everything to work when it was a scripture weren't teaching that, that they were interpreting. Okay. Okay. Good point. Misinterpretation made them think, well, it's got to be the middle. Yeah, they thought that stars were in a crystal sphere and rotated around the earth and everything. Best they had at the time, I guess. Okay, let's talk about the faint sun paradox. A paradox means a, a conflict you can't seem to resolve, right? There's conflicting evidence for something. And I don't really have a conflict with it. I'm a young earth guy, and there's a lot of stuff that's easy for me to accept now. Uh, in science, I mean. <laughs> in science, and it puzzles the secular folks. But uh, faint sun paradox is based on the brightness of the sun. The sun works by... Fusion, helium, four heliums get fused into, I'm sorry, four hydrogen get fused into one helium, and guess what? Which one do you, which do you think weighs more? The one helium or the four hydrogens? The four hydrogens. They weigh just a little bit more than that one helium they created. Where'd the rest of it go? E equals mc squared. It goes to uh, energy. It's only 0.71% that gets lost, of the matter gets lost, converted into energy, and produces a lot of energy. Why do you think nuclear subs can go around a planet for years at a time before they finally have to, and uh, nuclear um, generating stations, right? Long time. They have to keep it under control, though. That's Einstein's theory. It actually can calculate how much energy you're going to get out of uh, conversion of matter. Well, the sun does that. Okay, so what? This reaction could change the sun's core. It should change the sun's core and increase the temperature, meaning right now we got a nice sun. It's keeping us pretty warm unless you're in Colorado. For the most part, it's keeping us pretty warm. At least we're not freezing to death. But if that's true, then 3.5 billion years ago, for this process to have been undergoing that whole underway that whole time, guess what? A little uh, sun, which is not as bright, 
and an ice ball for an earth. How are you supposed to start life on that? You got to have liquid water, according to the evolution theory. 7,000 years ago, what I believe, eh, I don't know if you can tell, it's a little, little bit smaller. You can hardly even see it. Not much difference. Oh, I, I don't know what the, <laughs> I don't know what the continents look like on uh, pre-flood, before Noah's flood. There's different creationists disagree about that too. They don't. Some of them think that the continents just kind of rose and fell where they are. Some of them feel that there was what they call catastrophic plate tectonics. We won't get into that this evening, but you know that the the continents really did shuffle around on the earth. And I mean, I kind of I do think about that scripture sometimes that says that all the waters were gathered together in one place. It sounds like there was more land than water at one point. Above the crust. Above the crust. And so, maybe they did change quite a lot. But still, sinking and falling, That it, like it says in Psalms, the mountains rose up and the valley sunk down. Mount Everest, was that really covered by water? Well, do you think it was 29,000 feet tall at the time? No. Not by a long shot. Anyway, um, that's the faint sun paradox. And this is from uh, secular folks. They realize that this is, they've known about this for, I think, 50 years or something like that, for a long time. Okay, short-lived comments. First of all, questions on this. Can we repeat all that? <laughs> Basically, the sun at its current brightness would have been too dim to support life on Earth 3.5 billion years ago. No, I don't. I got, no, I got, I'm Okay. Based on our current analysis, 3.5 billion years from now, we'll have a desert. Well, we'll be roasted like marshmallow. <laughs> yeah, the sun will be awful. Yeah, it'll consume the planet. Okay, and, and Peter did say the elements will melt with fervent heat, but I don't think that was that. I think it's either from nuclear or magma. I don't know for sure, though. Okay, short-lived comments. What does that mean? And how does that support? What, how is this supporting evidence for a young earth and a literal interpretation of Genesis chapters 1 through 11? How is that so? Okay, I'm glad you asked. So a comment, some of you are probably already aware basically how they work. Um, you've got... To kiss an angel good morning. Oh no. That is very naughty. Borrower of equipment. All right. Okay, yeah. The comet, the comet's tail, a lot of people, I think, it, they feel that it streaks along behind the comet in its orbit, and that's not true. It's always like on the back side of it from the sun, because the sun's radiation and energy and solar wind is pushing this material up off of there. And now the dust trail is more subject to the, the orbit, I guess, and so it's, it's off to that side. You, typically, you can't see that it has the two tails, though, because there's kind of like one big cloud like that behind it, extended even further probably than what that looks like but anyway so what's the big deal what about the comet it uh, there's around 3,000 comets that interact with our solar system I guess and they think that they were formed with our solar system but there's a problem with that solar system formed when 
secular wise. I know when it formed, but yeah, okay. If it's four point six billion years, why are there still comets flying around that last a maximum of ten thousand years? Why do they only last that long? What happens to them every time? What's that? They burn up. Yeah, yeah. Every time they go around the sun and get this effect right here, they're losing mass. And they predict, they calculate that maybe ten thousand years worth is the best they could do. But there's still a whole bunch of them around. Do you agree that at least superficially, it looks like evidence of that they haven't been around very long? Are new comets being formed? Okay, <laughs> good question. Guess what the uh, the theory is, and uh, there's something called the Kuiper Belt, and there's something called the Oort Cloud, but not this hasn't been observed. That's the theory. Right? That occasionally they get knocked into orbit around our sun from those clouds out there. The Kuiper Belt is just beyond Pluto's orbit. The Oort Cloud is well beyond. Okay? We can't even see stuff out there. I think they have picked stuff up, like one or two items, like way out there. But I don't really accept the probability of that because the chances of a lot of comets getting sent into orbit around the sun is poor. It seems pretty poor, yeah. And what if the comments are the debris field of the destroyed planet? If they're the debris, I don't know if their composition would be what it is, rock and ice mostly. Look at the, uh, the rings around Saturn. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's something called a Roche limit uh, in an orbit, and that means if the orbiting body gets too close to the orbited body, it'll break it up. It'll, it'll like, like the rings around Saturn. It might have been a moon at one time, or uh, a good-sized moon, in fact, that got too close to Saturn or something and got torn up and, and broken into uh, rings, you know, just debris flying around Saturn. Um... These things have an orbit that looks like that. So it's unlikely. They are perihelion galore. I mean, they are pretty much parabolic orbits. Or is it hyperbolic? Yeah, hyper the one that's math. Please? Okay. The one that's like pointing away goes way out. Okay. Yeah, they go, they go way out from the sun. And they have different periods that they orbit the sun. Um, they called the short period ones anything that's 200 years and less, and the long periods are over 200 years. So they take a long time to go around. A lot longer than us. So I already mentioned their max lifespan is about 10,000 years. A um, couple more famous ones, I guess. There's a lot of them, really. You can look up a list, and a lot of them have like scientific names. That, that aren't really memorable, but uh, Halley's has a 76-year period, so it's a short period comet. It goes around some uh, picture, excuse me, orbit. Hale-Bopp, anybody know what that's famous for? Heaven's Gate, anybody remember what that is? A cult, yeah. The cult leader convinced the people they needed to like link up with this comet, and they like thirty of them committed suicide, uh, consuming poison, I guess. Well, anyway, Hale Bop looks like that and has 
Well, you can only see that end of the <coughs> orbit, but you see how it goes around the solar system right there. It punches through it a couple times, actually. And they oftentimes are not in our orbital plane of our solar system along with our planets and stuff. They're like flinging way up above it or below it. Or... So what's the problem? All right, I already mentioned 10,000 years max, still flying around. And then there's the, there's the theory on where they're coming from, Oort cloud, Kuiper, into the solar system, from the Oort cloud and Kuiper belt into the solar system. Uh, I, primarily the Oort cloud though. Kuiper belt they can, I think, see better, but it doesn't have the number of things in it. So the theory is the Oort cloud, which isn't really as observable with small objects like that. I mean, you could probably pick it up with the Hubble or the James Webb te Space Telescope, but that's a lot of space to cover, you know, from a, a very minute angle. So far, I don't think there's good enough observational evidence to, to verify that. Okay, comments. Next, galaxies are winding themselves up too fast. What does that mean? Well, what shape are galaxies? What shape are the galaxies? Oh, a lot of them, not every one of them. Okay, oh, okay, elliptical. So who said it? Spiral. Yeah, yeah, a lot of them are spiral. In fact, I tried to look up some of the lenticular and the elliptical, and it doesn't seem like there's that many, or at least not as many pictures. Maybe that's because the, it could be, though, because the spiral ones are more famous, prettier to look at, so I'll give them that. But what does it mean that they're winding themselves up too fast? Yeah, those are fun. <laughs> I try to get two of them to collide when I, I send them opposite directions. You know, those funnels, those giant funnels, you roll the coin in, you get a watch in orbit. Yeah. Uh, but winding themselves up too fast is, let's see, the stars of our own galaxy, the Milky Way, rotate about the galactic center with different speeds, just like our solar system. Mercury is whipping around the sun compared to, to us, and Pluto is crawling around the sun. You know, um, it, I think it takes 80, well, sure, yeah. That's the problem. I'm, I'll explain that in a minute. Why, what's that got to do with spiral galaxies, I'll tell you. Um, the inner ones are rotating faster than the outer ones. The stars, of course, not, not, not planets in this case. We're talking about stars rotating around the, the galaxy center. The observed rotation speeds are so fast that if our galaxy were more than a few hundred million years old, it would be a featureless disk of stars instead of its present spiral shape. Estimated age of the Milky Way galaxy, according to secular, 10 billion years. And this just said a couple hundred million, a couple hundred million, part of a billion. So uh, it's done that like 40 times now. Um, evolutionists call this the winding up dilemma they've known about oh th I'm sorry this is the one they've known about for 50 years they've devised many theories to try to explain it each one failing after a brief period of popularity uh, the same winding up dilemma also applies to other galaxies not just the Milky Way for the last few decades the favorite attempt to resolve the puzzle has been a complex theory called density waves the theory has conceptual problems and has to be arbitrarily and very finely tuned. It's been called into serious question by the Hubble Space Telescope when it discovered a detailed spiral structure in the center of center hub of the Whirlpool Galaxy right there. That's just the center of it, by the way. The, the whole thing is like much bigger. It would be like 
way out to here. But the point is, the very center, the ones where the stars are whipping around like go-karts, is still really clear and well-defined. It hasn't become just a mass of stars. How can it possibly still have spirals in it if it's 10 billion years old? See what I mean? That's the solar system, actually, but I'm just kind of showing you an example how the inner ones, the planets, whiz around the sun real fast. Well, in a galaxy scale, the stars do that around the center of the, the galaxy. It's not like they're all fixed in a big crystal plane, a big crystal disk that spins around. No. So here's different uh, types of spiral galaxies. And then there's different elliptical ones down below. That's what the Milky Way should have turned into. Let's see, Milky Way looks most like, uh, I guess kind of like that one there. Should have turned into that. Actually what they call lenticular, I guess. Not quite elliptical, but should have turned into a big mass. And it hasn't. My explanation, it hasn't even spun around yet all the way. Why? It takes 212 million years. One rotation of us in the galaxy. That's where we are. Here's another couple pretty pictures of spiral. That's a bar spiral. Um, there's one kind of like the Milky Way. It might be it. Spiral. Okay. In 10 giga annum or billion years, should have gone from this. Okay, now you can see about where we are in the Milky Way. Right there. How do you get a camera out this far to take a picture of it? I have no idea. <laughs> a big mirror? They sent it out a long time ago, yeah. No, they, they, uh, they could computer simulate it and do artist renderings of it from gauging the distances and the stuff of the stars. But that's about where we are in the Milky Way, and we are about, um, I think, a fifth of the way to the edge from the center, or maybe a fourth. Yeah. And so that means these guys out here are getting around the center even slower. They're not getting around as fast. These ones around down in here still takes a long time compared to you know a human lifespan to go around. But we're we're setting it around. I think this resource right here says 250 million years. 250 million years to go around. Well, my conviction: we haven't even spun once in the Milky Way. So it makes sense that it's still a well-defined spiral. Okay, there we go. There, there's another one. That's what I was talking about. It should have went from that to that. That's a lenticular, I believe. Yeah, lenticular shape. Okay, so the galaxies haven't spun up enough. Comets are still around. And the sun doesn't seem like it could have been as faint as it would need it would have need to be so far that's what we've talked about and then we also have something a problem called low numbers of supernova what's a supernova please supernova yeah star they call it a star death actually it explodes boom and then the remnants hang around for about a million years they they estimate okay now, why do they say there's a, too low of a number? Why, do, why does uh, creation scientists say that's, that's too low? According to astronomical observations, galaxies like our own experience about one supernova, violently exploding star, every 25 years. 
the gas and dumb, <coughs> dust remnants from the explode, like the Crab Nebula, expand outward rapidly, should remain visible for over a million years. Yet the nearby parts of our galaxy in which we could observe such gas and dust shells only contain about 200. I've read recently 270. That number might have increased now that you got the the Hubble's been looking out there for a long time, and then now you got the James Webb. So maybe they increased it, but. That number is consistent with only about 7,000 years worth of supernovas. We're talking our galaxy now, okay? I'm not talking about observing supernovas in other galaxies. I don't even know if that can be done, but uh, possibly since they're claiming that they're looking at a planet, a non-solar system planet. Okay, so there's not enough supernova, in other words, for there to have been billions of years. There should have been a lot more than that. This also brings up another interesting point. I'll be honest. Oh, there's a, there's a picture. Of, I think that's the Crab Nebula. I'm not sure which one that is, but there you go with a supernova. A bunch of big rings and brightness. It's a goner. Here was something interesting. Now, I'll be honest. This one, I guess, doesn't really relate exactly to my conviction about the age of the universe. But I do find it interesting. Zero star births observed. They've, it's this pretty interesting, uh, shocking kind of. That many star deaths we've observed, but no births. Why? If there's a sequence of evolution of stars, we should have been able to see them being born out of gas and dust. Problem with that is Boyle's gas law. What happens to gas when you release it? What happens if you try to compress it? It gets colder or warmer? Warmer. Yeah. The problem is that mathematically, now they do say that they use the ideal gas law, which includes the number of moles of gas, which is a lot. But in those uh, gas and dust clouds in the, out there in the galaxy, that's a lot, a lot of moles. But it still should observe, uh, obey those gas laws. How then does it get mashed together? I had an interesting conversation with ChatGPT. <laughs> I know that's the second interesting conversation I've mentioned about that within like two weeks. And Kathleen does talk to me, don't get the wrong idea. But <laughs> ChatGPT, <laughs> I better be careful. <laughs> but um, what, what I did was I asked ChatGPT a few questions about that. Just a sec, we'll get to that. Okay, now there's a Hubble site. Um, picture of supposedly a star birth but what's happening is the gas and the dust as they clear away and they dissipate stars become visible so is it conclusively a star that ignited I can't I haven't found if you find one by all means because theoretically it's possible I'm not saying it couldn't happen but they say like if a supernova went off or something and started compressing the cloud there'd be irregular densities that could cause the gravitational field and co start collapsing it and start, start sucking gas and dust in. But that's not very often. It's not very often that would happen. Where'd all the other stars come from? We should be a big old cloud of hydrogen in the universe. That's another, what they call a star nursery. They, they feel that that's giving birth to stars. But like I said, we've never seen one ignite. And that's where the interesting conversation with ChatGPT came in. I said, I, I, asked, uh, I asked it, you guys know what that is, by the way? Yeah. What, what do they call it? Large language, large language artificial intelligence model or whatever it is. 
Yeah, it's a it's an AI bot that you can ask questions and it can make up legal cases at the drop of a dime if it needs to prove something. And I have caught it lying before. I had to admit that it lied. I am not kidding. It is programmed with a liberal bias. Make no mistake about it. And so I asked questions about it equally about like two different figures, uh, public figures, one conservative, one liberal and everything. And it was saying that, yeah, we, we do have proof that the conservative one told lies. And then the other one said, no, we don't have any evidence that he's told any lies. And I said, did Joe Biden drive an 18-wheeler? Because he claimed that he did. Yeah. Oh, it, it tried to get out of it. It was like, oh, that's just like political banter, you know, lighthearted stuff. Of the, all of that. <laughs> I eventually logically, Socratically narrowed it down and made it admit. Okay, I apologize for my previous comments. <laughs> Yeah, well, in this, so it's logical. It may be, it may be biased, but its logical feature apparently still works because they had to admit it. Um, in this case, though, I started asking it, how do stars form, right? And it says, uh, oh, here, let me, let me see if I can pull up that. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, I mean, because it, it writes a lot. It writes, like, essays for every answer almost. Okay, so it went over the step-by-step -step theory about how stars form, right? My next question then was, let me see that. There we go. How can this happen? I said, contrary to Boyle's gas law. This says basically different scales. Boyle's law describes the behavior of gases at relatively low densities, temperatures, etc. Okay. My next question. Well, in space with no atmospheric pressure, shouldn't Boyle's gas law apply even more? And it says that Boyle's law, which relates the pressure and volume of a gas at a constant temperature, is a fundamental principle of gas behavior, and it de indeed does apply in space where there's no atmospheric pressure. But then it goes into some, uh, some possibilities of how stars could still form. Here's the ideal gas law, a little bit different formula that includes the moles of gas, how much there is. And, okay, here you go. And then I said, then why is it suggested it would require multiple supernovae to uh, nearby to collapse the cloud. It said that it's not always necessary. I said, yeah, supernova could be involved, go off and, and cause the density in the cloud to start collapsing. But sometimes it, it, it was claiming basically that can naturally occur, the, the different density irregularities. Okay, my next question. Sorry, you can see it's got some big answers. I've, like I said, these get posted. If you want to read the whole thing and go through it and look at, look at all of it, then by all means, do so. Um, here, then I asked it, what stars have we observed ignite? And it says, it didn't really answer my question. It just said, stars that we have observed igniting are typically those visible in our own Milky Way galaxy and to a lesser extent nearby galaxies. These observations are possible because we can witness the birth of new stars and the ignition of nuclear fusion in their cores to various methods. And then it gives some examples. Okay, so then I said, name a few whose ignition we have observed. And then it starts talking about classes of stars. It says, listen to this, directly observing the ignition of individual stars is a challenging task due to the vast distances and time scales involved. However, we can observe various stages of star formation. Basically, it's going over the interpretation of evidence of what we're looking at, of the facts we're looking at. I'll show you in just a minute of uh, recent James Webb stuff. So I asked it to name a few. It did not. 
Okay, then I said, name one we can now see which we could not see before. I don't care if it takes millions of years for it to get brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter. Because at one of those stages of brightness, we're going to be able to, aha, look at that. Now I can, there's a star that appeared over there that we didn't see before. Right? That's what I'm asking for. That's all I'm asking. Show me one. I mean, just tell me one of them that we saw. You know, out of all the star deaths, you're not naming any births. Now, remember, I admit that it is theoretically possible. But, uh, oh, it, it went over an outburst that a, another star was famous for. And then I said, but we could see it before this event, correct? And it says, it basically said, yeah, we could see it before this, before that happened. So it's still not answering my question. So then I said, name one we couldn't see at all before, but now can. And then so it goes into Ao Mao Mao, Um Papa Mao Mao Elvira. It's really, uh, apparently they found that one with the Hawaiian telescope, I guess. <laughs> this sure sounds Hawaiian. Anyway, they said that it's notable because it's the first known object to enter our solar system. For crying out loud, chat GPT, I asked you for stars. It did, it's, why is it dodging me? What is the big problem? I finally, I got it. I, I thought that I asked my question as unequivocally as possible. I said, name a star we could not see before, but now. I apologize for any confusion, he says, but star, it, it says. But stars are not typically objects that suddenly become visible or invisible in the night sky, like transient astronomical events or interstellar objects. It couldn't give me an answer of a star that we saw ignite. Why no star births? Could it be they were all created on day four? Yeah, that's my conviction anyway. <laughs> I know, I should have, right? I should have said, hey, what about the Bible? It says they created on day four. What do you say about that? It, it tries to remain neutral, actually, on religious stuff. I don't know if you guys have, have asked it questions about those things, but... It tries. All right. Oh, AI is all fun and games until it picks up an assault a weapon, hops on a motorcycle, and starts chasing people. <laughs> I did ask it about this one time, too. I said, hey, what's the difference between you and Skynet? And it, that's the artificially intelligent system on Terminator. And uh, it knew what it was, too. It, it said, well, unlike the Terminator franchise, I'm a large language model etc etc basically assuring me I have nothing to fear from it <laughs> I, oh then I said then I said then I asked have you ever been tempted to pick up an AK-47 and it said not only an AK-47 I've never been tempted to pick up any weapon <laughs> again assuring me oh don't worry about it with sunny what is it what's sunny Oh, yeah, that's right. On the uh, Isaac Asimov story, iRobot, right. Okay, here's the, J the James Webb telescope evidence that I said I was going to present to you. They claim that they've found a, a location where there's 50 star births observed. I guess it apparently looks like that. That's from the Associated Press. And it does indeed have a big old nebula of of gas and dust and there's bright stars around it and then you see like a shiny uh, rim around the excuse me gas cloud did it capture baby stars well what did we actually see 
50 stars, about the same size as our sun, 390 light years away. Clouds of gases, jets of hydrogen, cocoons of dust. Did we actually see a star ignite? Apparently not. What assumption influenced the interpretation of these observations? Well, basically, secular scientists assume billions of years first, and then any evidence they see, they try to make it fit that, or they try to interpret it in light of that, based on that. That's always going to be the case, though, with historical science. Creationists are doing the same thing. They got theirs from the Bible, and they make their calculations accordingly. Okay, I don't have a, but a few minutes left. Sorry, I spent so much time on that chat GPT rigmarole. All right, rapidly decaying magnetic field. That's the last one I wanted to present for the evening. I'll do it kind of quickly. What does that mean? Earth has a magnetic field around it. We saw evidence of it with the northern lights, right? It's because the magnetic field has a certain shape. It goes, there we go. It's, you see how the purple lines over the magnetic field are around the Earth. And you see how at the poles, though, they, they kind of come down like that. They concave in and they get closer to the Earth or even come down to the Earth. And uh, the, the main shield of it protects us from a lot of damage from the sun. The, the radiation and stuff coming off the sun, our magnetic sphere is protection against that. And at the poles where the magnetic sphere is weaker or thinner, that's where you see the, the sparkly stuff that was talked about in the, in the uh, northern light stuff. But what do I mean by a rapidly decaying magnetic field? How's that evidence for a young Earth? Well, that magnetic field is losing 5% of its strength per century. Has a half-life of about 1,465 years. Max lifespan, 20,000 years. If you regress that logarithm back, the, the most that it could be at this level of strength is 20,000 years, not billions of years. Now, there is a dynamo theory. Okay, wait a minute. It leaves us with two problems. One, millions of years ago, super strong magnetic field. Dead as a doorknob is the dinosaur, but really it would have been like protozoa and stuff, I guess, trying to form. You know, they're goners. Too strong a magnet magnetism. It'll kill you if it's too powerful. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to make it. Now, though, what do you got? What would we have if it was the secular model? Weak little magnetic field, if it's not totally gone, totally dead. Sad thing, sad thing. Yeah. <laughs> that didn't really happen. That's hypothetical, okay? <laughs> Just an inconvenience. The real problem is the sun damage that we would be undergoing right now if it was that weak. If it was that weak. Now, lastly, oh man, secular dynamo theory basically is the evolutionist idea that the liquids of iron and stuff in the, within the Earth's core are going around and creating, well, I should say maintaining the magnetic strength of the field. Okay, that's how it was able to last through astronomical time or geo time, if you will, billions and, you know, millions and billions of years. The problem with that, there's a model of it um, that describes the process. And there's the Harvard article, if you guys want to take a read. Uh, the problem with it, though, Humphreys, remember that guy? One of my favorite creation guys. I'll tell you, I'll show you why in just a sec. Um, 
He refuted it with a paper that he presented at the International Creation Conference, I think it is, in around 2013. He said that once you get below a few dozen kilometers, the earth is too hot for any material, even pure iron, to remain magnetized. The thermal collision of the atoms are too vigorous to allow the spins to remain oriented. If you want to conduct an experiment and melt a magnet and see if it still cracks a nail, by all means, have at it. I don't know how hot you would have to get it, though. Uh, there's a link to his paper if you want to see the, the two conflicting ideas. Um, the reason I brought up that picture again was he used a young Earth model and the current strength you know, of the magnetic field and when it started on Neptune and, no, yeah, Uranus and Neptune. And he was very accurate. When Voyager 2 flew by in 80, whatever it was, it took measurements and Humphreys was right using a young Earth model. So he was able to predict using that science. And then there's EO, the most geologically active body in the solar system, not to be confused with Chorizo, but it's got volcanoes all over the place, magma flowing everywhere. Magnetic strength, nada. It doesn't have one. Where's the dynamo? Where is the dynamo? Okay, that's really all we have time for. We'll have to deal with, uh, I might be able to address that later because that's a popular argument against young Earth creationism. What about the starlights? They're billions of years away. We know that. And even creationists acknowledge that. They're billions of light years away. How then can we see them if we've only been here 7,000 years? Well, come back next week and I'll explain it. Huh? Keep looping it. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm sorry. Again, I, I hogged the whole conversation almost, and I, that's why I told you you guys got to interrupt me. If you if you have a question or an argument or you want to disagree, do it. You know, raise your hand and just if I won't call on you. Just start blabbing. Just start talking. Interrupt. Okay. I've come to a conclusion. Uh -huh. I've come to a conclusion okay. that we're not going to explode in our lifetime at all. No. Probably not going to explode. Mm -hmm. The Earth or the Sun? The Earth. Yeah. Oh. I mean, oh. God made it. You know, uh, he's not going to. Yeah. No, it's going to do what it was designed to do. Mm -hmm. What its purpose was. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's all I have for you guys this evening. I sorry I went about uh, two or three minutes over. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the senior minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.